Open your Bible with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. 464 years ago, next Sunday, on March 21st, 1556, a man called Thomas Cranmer was killed. Cranmer was the Archbishop of Canterbury who's most remembered for having written the Book of Common Prayer, which the Church of England uses still to this day, as many as other, uh, many other Reformed denominations. Cranmer helped England break its tie with Rome and, and establish itself as a free nation from Rome, from the Pope, based on their own Reformation doctrine. However, it wasn't too long when Mary I came to power and took England straight back to Rome. Uh, in, that, in that work, she violently killed over 300 Protestants, earning her the name Bloody Mary. During that time, many Christians fled to the continent, but Thomas Cranmer remained in England, where he was condemned for treason for his beliefs alongside two dear friends, Hugh Latimer and Thomas Ridley. Cranmer's life was initially spared while his two friends were sentenced to immediate death. They were burned at the stake. In Fox's book of Martyrs, um, Mr. Fox tells us that Latimer called out to his friend these words, Play the man, Mr. Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust it shall never be put out. Thomas Cranmer was forced to watch his friends die with those words ringing in his ear. Uh, there's an old drawing here that will help paint the story of what happens. After three months in prison, but it doesn't tell the whole story, after three months in prison, Cranmer caves into pressure from the government. He agrees to submit his life to the Pope. He writes a document uh, denouncing everything that he believed to be true about freedom, about uh, the doctrines of grace. He submits his life to the Pope in this letter. Well, that's not good enough. They want him to say those things publicly. And so they put him up in one of the most prestigious pulpits in Oxford, and they want him to say these things out loud, what he had written with his hand. But by the time he gets into that pulpit, his heart had changed. His heart was so sorrowful for what he'd done in betraying the Scripture, betraying Christ. And so he gets up, and knowing that he would immediately be put to death, he condemns Rome and took back everything that he had recanted. Immediately, the authorities seize him and bind him to that same stake that his two friends were just murdered at months earlier. Cranmer's final words were, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then just like we see of Stephen in the book of Acts, he says, I see the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Last week, we looked at William Tyndale and the price that he paid so that we could have God's word in the English language. This week, I just wanted to present to you the story of Thomas Cranmer. You'll see why in just a moment. But before we get there, I just wonder, as you hear stories like this from church history, do you find yourself wondering what you would have done? As a boy, I remember sitting in science class, the most boring of all classes. And I'm sorry, it's just a joke. Kids, pay attention in science class. You'll really need that when you grow up. 
Let's move on. Where I want to get is a serious thing, so let's move on. I, I remember sitting in any class, and I would have these, uh, these daydreams of someone storming into the classroom and holding us at gunpoint, calling us to renounce our faith in Christ or die. Anybody else ever have thoughts like that? Well, I did. And I wondered if I would have enough courage to die as a disciple of Jesus. As we look at the life of Peter this morning, we see him do uh, the same thing that we just learned in the life of Thomas Cranmer. In a moment of weakness, he recants his belief in Jesus. He even denies any association with him at all. But in the end, Peter would stand for Christ all the way to his own crucifixion. Now, I believe that Matthew includes this account because he wants to prepare us for the many moments that we will face as disciples of Jesus where we will have to choose to stand for Christ, live for Christ, love Christ, even at great cost, to play the man, as Latimer said. So we must ask ourselves a question, are we willing to follow Christ even at the great cost of our lives? Or maybe even a more telling question, are we willing to live for Christ day in and day out? In the scenes of Matthew 26, verses 57 through 75, there are two different kinds of trials. There's a trial of Messiahship and a trial of discipleship. One scene is the trial of Jesus called to testify of his true identity as the Messiah in front of the most powerful people in all of Israel. The second scene is the trial of Peter who denies and betrays his Lord in front of a powerless group of servants. Along the way, we will learn how Christ alone has faced the final judgment in our place so that frail and fickle disciples might stand accepted before God, the righteous judge. I've entitled the sermon, The Rock and the Cornerstone. And I want to just frame our time under two headings. One, the rock of our salvation, verses 57 to 68. And second, the fragile stone, verses 69 through 75. Let me invite you, if you would, to stand once more to your feet as we hear from God's holy and inerrant word. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You've said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? 
You've now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you please be seated? First, let us look to the rock of our salvation, verses 57 through 68. In this scene, we find the trial of Jesus as Messiah. After seizing him from the Garden of Gethsemane, these men take Jesus by cover of night to be tried by Caiaphas, the high priest, along with the scribes and elders of all of Israel. Verse 59 tells us clearly that these men were seeking false testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death. Before the trial ever begins, the judge and jury have reached their verdict. They will not be satisfied. They will not rest until they kill the Lamb of God. Scholars have pointed out there might be up to 14 different laws broken in this illegal court proceeding. They're breaking all the laws they can to just get in their way. There's no time to, for due process to run its course. Um, the trial happens in a private home rather than a public court. It's conducted by dark of night rather than in the light of day. In the courtroom of Caiaphas's house, the king of kings silently testifies to his identity in front of a hellish jury. Matthew tells us the religious leaders can't drum up any charge of false testimony that would satisfy the requirement of having two witnesses observe how Jesus has broken the law. This goes all the way back to, to uh, the writings of Moses, the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 19.15 tells us that any charge that's brought has to be established in at least the presence of two witnesses. Well, finally, Matthew says, they subpoena these two guys who, who say they heard Jesus with their own ears say he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. So these plaintiffs are referring to an early statement in Jesus' ministry. John records in his gospel, chapter 2, verse 29. They're not lying. Jesus really did say that. But what they've done is taken it completely out of context. Jesus wasn't talking about burning down the temple. He was talking about his own body, how his body would die, yet after three days he would be raised to life again. From the cross, still, people misunderstood these words. Matthew records in chapter 27, we'll look at in a couple of weeks, someone yelling out from the crowd, 
You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. I just wonder if that person yelling at Jesus while he hangs from the cross may have been in this very courtroom this night. As Jesus faces the Jewish Supreme Court, he stands there silent. He does not defend himself. He does not explain. He simply stands quietly as the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, which reads, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Caiaphas knows that even though this charge may stick, it's not enough to sentence him to death. And he feels like this case is slipping through his fingers. And at that moment, he throws the book at him. He's angry. He's trapped in a corner and he lashes out, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Stand before God and tell us who you are, is what Caiaphas is doing here. And Jesus finally speaks. He says, you have said so. Another way to interpret that phrase is, indeed, you have spoken correctly. Jesus knows that it's time now for him to communicate his identity even in the secret chamber of these Jewish leaders. He's saying, I am him. And from now on, you'll see me sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Those are the two things that he says. And there's a a lot of verses that we could reference. I just want to pull to the surface two. When he says that you'll see me sitting at the right hand of power, he has in mind Psalm 110. Where indeed the Son whom the Father has promised, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is saying, that's who I am. The one seated at the right hand of the Father with all power. And then he uses the phrase, the Son of Man. That's not new to us. We've we've come across that, that terminology. This is a nickname that Jesus uses for himself throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Likely his, his favorite nickname. And that is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, which says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that's the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's who Jesus is. And that's that's it. Caiaphas has all he needs. Jesus has just claimed to be God. He's either God or he's a blasphemer, and Caiaphas only has a category for the latter. He dramatically tears his robe and calls for the mob's judgment. Death, they cry out. Mark and Luke um, tell us this little detail of the final scene here. Jesus is blindfolded. And don't miss this, as the shepherds of Israel, the religious leaders of their day, club him, spit in his face, strike him. And since this Messiah is told to know hidden things, they want him to tell them, who's hitting you, Jesus? 
Who's spitting on you, Jesus? And the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, is completely silent. Before we look at Peter, and we'll get there in just a moment, we need to have a good look at Christ. We need to be reminded that the Savior stood silently in that courtroom for us. Jesus faced the judgment of Israel and was condemned so that you and I might face the judgment of God himself and be welcomed into the courts of the king. Jesus stood silently before his accusers so that you and I might stand before God singing songs of salvation. Jesus suffered at the hands of scoffers that we might not suffer in eternity separated from the presence of God. Jesus has done what we could never do. Namely, he has saved us from our sins. You need to be convinced of this. If you're in Christ, you need to remind yourself of this. You're not accepted before a holy and righteous God because of anything that you have done, but by what Christ has done. That's what makes the gospel such good news. You feel tired from striving to get God to like you. Are you worn out for trying to earn the acceptance of God? If you're in Christ, rest. Christ has done it all. Christ has saved us in Christ alone. Because of Christ, when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see failing and fickle disciples. He sees you as sons and daughters of God, covered in the blood of Christ. On Christ the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The second thing I want us to look at is this fragile stone, verses 69 through 75. And as we consider these verses, I want us to see the incredible symmetry of these two trials. It's highlighted by the word now. So you have your Bibles open. I'm going to circle those two words in verses 59 and 69. Now. 59 and 69. The first now points to the trial of Jesus. The second now points to the simultaneous trial of Peter. Now, each scene happens at the same time with radically different outcomes. As Christ stands as the cornerstone of the church, Peter the rock miserably falls. Let's see how. As Jesus was being taken to his trial, Peter follows at a safe distance with his friend John, where they can see all that's going to be happening. One commentator observed, Peter followed Jesus at a distance midway between courage and cowardice. So he's gone from boldly standing with Christ in the garden. Remember, he cuts off the ear of this soldier. Do you remember that from last week? Kids, do you remember that from last week? An ear on the ground. Jesus grabs it and puts it back on the soldier's face and heals him. That's the only thing that kept Peter out of prison is Jesus healed that guy. But Peter's gone from boldly standing with Christ in the garden to now just blending in with the temple guards. He's sitting in the courtyard 
And while he's there, he's approached by a simple servant girl. She identifies him as having been with Jesus. He denies it. Matthew uh, 26, verse 71, highlights how Peter went out to the entrance. Now, Peter's retreat tells in bodily language what's happening in his heart. He's moving further and further from Jesus. And as this physical separation gets wider, so does his spiritual nearness. That's what's happening. As Jesus, as Peter has moved from the garden to now safely somewhere between courage and cowardice following Christ, and now just drifting out. Another servant girl recognizes him and says to her friends, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Now she uses his name, but Peter won't do it. Peter says, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. Just pause right here and think with me about Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, where Jesus says, Whoever denies me in front of men, I will deny them in front of my Father who is in heaven. Peter has drifted so far and so quickly from his Savior. And finally, the group of servants say, We can tell you're one of Jesus' friends even by your accent. You speak like a Galilean. I love the way the ESV translates this word. Your accent betrays you. That's a choice word to describe Peter's voice. It does not merely deceive. It betrays his integrity. And in doing so, it betrays the king that he loves so much. This time, Peter curses. And then just repeats again, he doesn't know the man. When we look at Luke and Matthew's accounts side by side, they tell us that in this very moment, there's, there's a couple of different things happening at the same time. Um, on one hand, the rooster crows, and Peter remembers what Jesus had said. And then Luke tells us, in that very moment, the eyes of Jesus lock into Peter's. I cannot imagine what his face looked like. What the face of the Savior looked like as he looked at his disciple who he knew had betrayed him. I don't think it was one of disgust. I think it was one of love. The same look probably that he gave him as he was sinking in the ocean waves. Oh, Peter. I'm sure no heart has ever sunk as deeply into sorrow as Peter's with that glance. He betrayed his master. He denied his savior, and he knew it. The chapter ends with the words that Peter wept bitterly. Those are the last words recorded about Peter in the Gospel of Matthew. Doug O'Donnell points out there's, there's no more talking from Peter, no more great confessions, no more boasting, no more walking on water, no more drawing of his sword. There's only silence and the unmistakable noise of someone scampering in the dark and the faint sound of a once mighty man crying in the night. 
I love Peter. I'm helped by Peter's life. And I'm so thankful God's word doesn't edit the lives of his people. It gives us an honest experience of a disciple following Christ. Here is a man who has followed Jesus since the day he first heard Jesus' voice echo on the Sea of Galilee, come and follow me. This is a man who tasted heavenly bread after distributing it to thousands of people from a little boy's lunch. And then he ate himself. He tasted of this miraculous food. He knew the touch of Jesus' hand reaching down into the water to save his life and pull him up to safety again. His own tongue was the first to profess, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. His eyes beheld the glory of Christ fully on display in the Mount of Transfiguration just weeks before this. This is the one who Jesus said upon whom he would build his church. Hours earlier, Peter had professed his unwavering allegiance to Christ. He said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Yet here it is, by the rise of the morning sun, Peter has denied Christ three times. His spirit was willing. His flesh was weak. A number of years ago, I read a, a book on the life of Simon Peter by an author named Michael Card. The title of that book was The Fragile Stone, where he looked at the emotional life of Simon Peter and the passion of Simon Peter, the zeal of Peter, and we, we have seen it. He was vulnerable on many counts. But he was vulnerable to the same temptations that you and I are. And like us, Peter cracked and buckled under pressure. He proved that he too needs a savior. Even Peter would need forgiveness of his sins. While Matthew doesn't record it, I want to tell you the rest of the story. Like we've come so, so close to uh, John's account of this in chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. Uh, we've, we've just got to read it here. Um, after Jesus faces the cross for Peter's sin... And after Jesus was raised to life again, ensuring Peter's resurrection, they meet again. And Jesus speaks to his beloved disciple. John 21, beginning in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, 
You will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, notice uh, in John's text here, verse 19, this is set aside. He wants us to understand exactly what Jesus means here. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Their relationship ends where it began. The invitation of Christ, follow me. Let's not miss this. After Peter's sin was exposed, Jesus reclothes him in his grace. Peter's sin exposed him. Jesus reclothes him in his grace. That's what he's doing here. Three times Peter had denied Jesus. And now three times Jesus gives him the opportunity, speaking again and again and again. I'm not done with you, Peter. Jesus gives mercy to his friend. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of his friend. Peter would learn from this. And the day would come when he would follow Jesus all the way to his own death, where he asked Church history tells us to be crucified upside down so as not to be crucified the same way as the king that he loved so much. Perhaps like Peter, you have denied Christ. Even you who are in Christ, maybe you've denied him. Maybe like Thomas Cranmer, that you've you've recanted on what you profess to believe. And maybe your denial of Jesus wasn't with your mouth, but with your life, with your actions. Perhaps you've been living as if you don't know the man. And could it be that Christ, in his great and sovereign grace, has brought you here this morning so you might be warned by his word? It is not too late. Repent of your sin and turn and follow Christ. And to you who have never turned, it is not too late. Repent of your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. After Jesus faced the cross for our sin, he triumphed over the grave, securing our resurrection. And he speaks to us still. Follow me. You, fragile Christian, clothe yourself again with the mercy of Christ. You whose heart trembles at the thought of dying, look to Christ with confidence. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. The great uh, Richard Sibbs once said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And some of you need to hear that this morning. Well, what do we do with this? What do we do with a passage like this? Well, by including it in his account, Matthew is warning us to hold fast to the confession of our faith. That's the primary application that I want to stress to you. 
people of the Trails Church, hold fast to the confession of our faith. In the face of persecution, both great and small. But I also want us to walk away with three thoughts ringing in our hearts. Here they are. Number one, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and look again. Where Peter failed his trial of discipleship, Jesus passed his trial of messiahship. In his silence and in his testimony, he stood bold to earthly powers to bring us salvation. So as his disciples, let's learn from Peter's example here, stay near to Christ, keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, who is the rock of our salvation. Second, understand your weakness. Understand your weakness. When we look at Peter's bold faith in verses 32 through 35, what becomes evident is that his confidence was not in Christ, but in himself. His faith was in his faith. Peter saw Christ, but he failed to see how he fit in a right relationship to him. I've thought of the words of Rich Mullins multiple times this week. We are not as strong as we think we are. Um, some of you have come to the trails just recently, maybe from other churches, and there's so many healthy churches in North Texas. Praise the Lord for that. But some of you may be coming from a church culture where to be accepted and to fit in, you, you had to act like you could do it yourself. You had to act like everything was fine for you. And uh, if that's true, I just want to encourage you just to check those bags at the door. Leave that behind. The power of the gospel is in our weakness, Christ is strong. So this is a place where weakness is welcome. And Christ is the only hero among us. The rest of us are sinners in need of a savior. And if that irritates you, it's supposed to. What that is, is just the Lord in his kindness pulling these weeds of self-righteousness out of the garden of our hearts. Let's be open to that. Understand your weakness. And then third, repent greatly. Repent greatly. We'll look at this more next week. What differentiates Peter from Judas is that his sin led him to repentance and deeper faith. So when you sin and you will sin, repent greatly. Repent deeply. Look to the example of Peter. He wept bitterly. And keep believing that while our sins are many, his mercy is more. As we conclude, I came across a hymn this week by Philip Bliss based on the passage that we're looking at today. This is what he wrote about Peter's account. In the garden, boldly, Peter would have fought. Now he answers coldly, nay, I know him not. And so he's looking at Peter as an example and as a warning, and he's praying these next few verses from his own life. He says, Though long years of sorrow may be my earthly lot, may my murmurings never say I knew him not. 
He goes on, though life's stony pathway be with dangers fraught, let my falterings never say, I knew him not. Though our path's journey may be filled with great joy or deep sorrow, let us lean our hearts totally upon Christ. Let us stand firm in the grace of Christ. Let us build our life on the foundation of Christ, who is our rock and our cornerstone. Let's pray. So Jesus, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for doing what we could never do and providing a way of salvation so we could stand before the very throne of God in his righteous court and be completely acquitted of our sins, not just some, but the whole. And we look to you for help. We bring you our need and ask that you would fill it with your plenty. We bring to you our sin and look to you for forgiveness. We bring our doubts and pray that you would speak a stronger word of truth. Thank you that you have become for us a cornerstone. In your great grace, teach us to build our lives on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.